Welcome to Weird Sequence, Season 1, Sequence 11, A Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. Be aware spoilers and trigger warnings for the following. Industrial accidents and outdated gender views. So, original Game Boy. My mother would always complain that she would get to a certain point um, in like the, the unlimited Tetris. Mm-hmm that she was like it's just too you can't play it it's just too fast people don't react that speed whatever mother you know you just not not get any further that game my mother played this game a lot like my mother broke a game boy playing this game she literally wore it out yeah and uh come to find out years later that no she was absolutely correct when you get to like about 278 like Mm -hmm. level 278 the game speed becomes faster than the reaction times of your muscles. Wow. So what my mother was complaining about was her fingers didn't work fast enough to keep playing Tetris past that point. <laughs> it must be, you know, Tetris skill must be uh, like a, a mother superpower because my mom was super good at Tetris too. And she loved it enough that she would refuse to play it because she would just get sucked in and she'd play it for hours and hours and hours. Anyway, welcome to the show. We're your hosts. I'm Phil Allegheny. And Damien Haster. And this week, our book is... It's The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. I'm glad you remembered the author's name because I was completely blanking and hurriedly looking that up on Wikipedia. I have it right in front of me. (laughs) I've got to be honest, this was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. It's a quick read. And if you're if you're uh, if you're in high school listening to this, um, welcome. I hope you learned something for your paper. If if you're in high school listening to this and you're under the age of eighteen, run. Yeah, go to bed. Go go to bed. Don't look at any of the carnival shows we did. No. Or any of the shows before that. Yeah. So so I read this story. <laughs> I read this story for the first time. I think my freshman year of high school, and it quite honestly, has kind of haunted me ever since then. Um, it was... I, I've never read this one before. So I, I, I know the sort of the idea, well, you have a monkey's paw, you have three wishes, and I've seen sort of various renditions of this. Mm-hmm. Although the one I'm thinking of the top of my head was from the League of Gentlemen, where it's like you touch the monkey's bollocks. But that's... <laughs> <laughs> That that was more of a direct curse that was being passed down, but that was that was quite an episode. Well, bollocks came up like shockingly fast in this episode. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've I've never actually read this story before, so this this was interesting to sort of go back to roots and and have a read at. Hmm. So, do you want to summarize it, or do you want me to read the entire thing word for word? Because I I'm, I'm, I learned last episode that I'm terrible at summarizing stories. I'm I'm genuinely I'm genuinely worried seeing as this whole thing is maybe if I'm generous four pages long that the summary might run longer than the story. It might, yeah. So as it's gonna it's gonna take some some effort of will, some some careful consideration. So I mean, the, to summarize the, this down the, shorter than the actual story. The, the shortest summary is that you get to put you get to wish things on the monkey's paw and things don't go according to plan. Oh, we can do it shorter than that. Hang on. His friend has a magic mon- monkey's paw. You make wishes with the monkey's paw that are bad. 
the idiot guy makes wishes. Done. Yeah, I mean it's 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 all it's it's a very um, it's a theme that that has pervaded the mythology of our like Western society, and I don't know if it comes back to it goes back to like um, Arabian Nights or something like that, but like well, it it was making me think of um, you always have that traditional idea of a, a genie in a bottle, right? And you know. Your more modern interpretation is like Aladdin. You have, you know, big friendly Disney approved genius like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Cool. But, you know, the the more common interpretation of that is this kind of creature that's going to give you sort of what you want, but not exactly what you want. Right. And I think that's kind of what this is based on. Mm. I I very much think this is, um, I guess, I guess the idea of genies is Islamic. Yes. Yeah, that's medi post medieval period. Yeah. So yeah, this Islam, is, this is probably Islam comes re- around at like five or six hundred eighty. Yeah. BCE. So it's it's probably just the a rendition of um, that kind of story. You can wish for something, you can get the thing that you want, but you're going to be punished for um, sort of short circuiting the hard work you need to get it. Yeah. The it's kind of summarized by the sergeant major. And by the way, the dialogue in this story is very, very British, just like um, just like in um, the Great God Pan. It it's interesting as well because it, it's it's it is, and it's it's also older, and it's also somewhat regional. Yeah. So the sergeant major says of the monkey's paw that it had a spell on put on it by an old fakir. A very holy man, he wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. So, you know, the faker is trying to show that your life is ruled by fate and if you do anything to usurp fate, it doesn't end well for you. Which I'm curious about because wouldn't it be fated that you usurp fate? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yes, yes, there is a whole paradox in there with if fate controls you and you wish on a monkey's paw for something, then fate has thereby decreed that that was going to happen. So, If something knows what you're going to do before you do it, there is no free will and self-determination. Otherwise, Say it with me now. Otherwise you get final destination. It's just basic probability. Right. The probability of something that's always known is one. If you are going to make a decision at a point, you can say, okay, I'm going to make this wish. Oh, I'm going to make this thing that's going to punish people for making these wishes because it's it's going to do this. If the idea is to show to them that there's already a plan, that they're known, if, if, if fate already has this plan designed, then the probability of what they're going to do is always going to be one because something always knows what it is. Yeah. So what the, the guy is saying is, well, I'm f- fated to build this awful, evil device, and you're fated to use it, and then you're going to be punished to prove that you know you're short-circuiting fate. Even though, what I'm saying is, you have to follow the prescribed path that you have without variation. It's kind of dickish. Mm, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is that is a good a good. Uh, it is this this monkey's paw is a a big. Well, it's a small shriveled dick move. 
It's a giant, giant middle finger because if if the guy if the fake ear's original point is correct, well, I guess what he's trying to say is you know you you can't you can't fight against what you're determined to do. Right. Be happy with but what if, you have. Right. But if you're determined to if if it's predestined to, to do or have that thing, you can't opt in or out of predestination. You know what I mean? Right. So, what was he proving here? Oh, nothing. Fate decided it was just going to be awful to a bunch of people for uh, arbitrary, capricious reasons, and that's that. Yep. So, if you uh, if you came across a monkey's paw, would you would you wish something upon it? No. I'd be like, "That's neat." I'd probably bring it home, and my wife would go, "What is that disgusting thing in my house?" And put it in the trash. <laughs> Your dog would eat it. Quite possibly. Mm-hmm. The dog does like jerky, and it has poor impulse control, and is kind of stupid. Right. Um, not not stupid enough to not figure out how to open doors. Not stupid enough to not carefully figure out how to open a bag of bread and put a face in it. But definitely stupid enough to figure out not to figure out that you know, um, just because I walked into another room doesn't mean I've ceased to exist. Right. It's selective stupidity. My dog has no object permanence. It's weird. <laughs> um so so let's talk about we were we were talking about the regional like so how how this is a very british story sorry i i i I, I did want to point out the the three line summary is it's quite literally kind of the story right um so regional accents right as the as the the present representative of the british empire I am. I'm not officially endorsed by Her Majesty. Oh, okay. You don't have that little stamp that they put on the the mustard and stuff that she uses. You you mean the royal coat of arms? Oh yes, that was that was that was <laughs> that was maybe one of the more American things I've ever said in my life. Wow, the little sticker. Wow, Damien, that's <laughs> that's all I can say to that. Um. Did, did you not have the little sticker that the queen puts on the things? What her official royal coat of arms right, for services to her household? No, it's I don't like have it's that. like a gold star. Like, good job, you did your math homework. It kind of is. <laughs> um, so if when you see all these old jam companies and they have the the little coat of arms, it it means that they supplied one of the royal households with product for like two years consistently or something. Hmm. Not even free of charge. Like they just bought it from them and they went okay here's the thing you bought there you go i mean i'd put that on my product well i mean brands are like academics they just love garnering awards regardless of whether they make sense or not can we put the royal coat of arms on our podcast only if the queen herself listens to this podcast for about two years in a row okay well let's see if we do this for two years in a row and then maybe we'll send it to westminster whatever we're, we're gonna get to 23 months and just be like Ugh. <laughs> watch a lot the, of work man watch the queen is a is an avid listener already she's our one <laughs> listener uh not even your mother anyway yeah. yes so regional accents yes regional accents so to my ear this just all sounds like um very british speak like when I when I read this in my head, it sounds like the worst adaption of Pride and Prejudice. 
know. This I would totally have read Pride and Prejudice if this was how it actually happened. Right. It would make things... Uh, although, have you read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? That's pretty exciting. It's pretty I watched good. the film. Yeah, the film was good. Um, I watched the film with you. Did you? Yeah. I remember... You your wife. I remember watching it. I don't remember you. <laughs> Rude. Interesting. Sorry. Rude. So... So these people live out in the country. Correct. Uh, which they don't is, seem to be happy about it. No, well, at least the, the Mrs. White is not. Um, and this seems to be a theme with this kind of Victorian era British writing is like these, you know, well-to-do or nearly well-to-do people have a summer home out in the country that they go to. and But... Like, uh, can you place I mean, where they are just based on how they're talking? I don't know. Me personally, no. Oh. Um, but I was I was going to say, for, for a modern analogy for the, the feel for what I get from these people is, you, you know, when people talk about, well, we're going to go build a house in the country. And they go, you know, six miles out of town and they go and build a, a find an acre of land and they build a house. And then. Two years later, they sell the house because they realize everything is at least a 30-minute drive. Right. That's what I think these people are. Right. I think so, too, because at the at the very end of the book, like the very last line, it talks about the street lamp flickering opposite the, opposite the house. Like, you can't be that far out in the country if you've got a street lamp outside of your house. Mm-hmm. So... I would argue... If you have a streetlight outside of your house, you're not really in the country. No, you're like in the suburbs. And but is this like who's the what's the, who's the lady from uh, from Keeping Up Appearances? Is, is is Mrs. White like like that? Hyacinth Bucket. Yes, is is Hyacinth Bucket like Mrs. White? She is is talking like this is some uh, big country manner, but it's really just you know. Uh, uh, it's a semi-detached house in Croydon. No. Um. <laughs> Kind of, yeah. Actually, a little bit is is the the, the feel I get. You know, they they are definitely talking about it, it being a, a development that they they've got in on early, mm-hmm. but then they don't seem terribly happy about being in the development. No, the the, the point I was I was uh, saying about it being sort of older regional languages. I mm-hmm. don't recognize some of the way they phrase things. Oh yeah. Um, now, whether that's a function of this is just a really old story because this was see 1902. I've read a bunch of like turn of the century stuff though. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have expected to be caught off by that. This is definitely like high British empire. Like, you know, the, when, when the, like, like the Sergeant major, he's like in, in my head, he looks like a guy where that you know he's been out of the army for a while, but he still wears a pith helmet and a uniform and smokes a pipe and talks about you know the the glories of India and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and also I have to say one of the one of the words like when I read this story in high school, there were vocabulary words, mm-hmm. and one of them is a, is a phrase that I've never ever forgotten and it's a uh, rubicon de visage which what means it means red-faced oh dear yeah it says where is it uh it's when he first comes in uh let's see 
The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door, was heard condoling the new rival. The new rival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, tut-tut, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye, and rubicund of visage. Oh, that's right. I, I also thought the phrasing, you know, condoled themselves in this usage was a little odd. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen that before, and I, I, I don't know if that's... Um, just some odd phrasing that the authors used, or mm-hmm. if that is a turn of phrase I'm just not familiar with. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's condoling. It's to offer condolences. Like, right. To, oh, sorry for the house. To lament yeah. something, you know. So right. the guy goes to the, you know, the new arrival. They both sort of condole about things, and then the guy condoles with himself, and they come in. They're not mourning anything at this point. No, they're just they're just having... That uh, that polite sense of shame that you know. <laughs> what is? It's just I, the only thing I can picture in my head is it's that, that very that British thing of just you know always going to the worst case scenario. Right. So it's sort of walked in like, oh bloody terrible weather. It is indeed bloody terrible weather. Right. Yes. And I that, must I must kind of apologize for the state doing. of my house. It's appalling. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about the mess. A tree fell through the roof, killed three of my family. Um, let me get you some tea and biscuits. Right. Oh, that'll be fine. I don't want to be a bother. <laughs> um, have you seen yeah. Have you seen that video about um, about how Irish people offer things to each other versus how German people offer things to each other, and then how German and Irish people offer things to each other? Yes, it's it's hilarious. It is quite funny. Um, my my favorite one on a similar theme was. Um, was a, uh, a Japanese language instructor. So when you go to someone's house in Japan, it, it, they would typically offer you food, right? You you were expected to decline it the first time as not to question your host's generosity. Right. So this woman goes to Texas. And, um, you know, the, the host offers her pizza. Well, you know, she's just like, oh, no, no, I, I, I couldn't possibly, you know, take pizza away from you don't just ridiculous no i'm good thank you and she's like okay then went in the kitchen and ate the pizza ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, cultural misunderstandings she's like yeah apparently it's one of the first things she teaches people in a class she's like either way you know yep. going to japan or coming from japan to another country you've got to get that right because mm-hmm. you will be hungry or people will be angry at you yeah that's like when americans go to paris and want to tip their waiters yeah, the tipping thing's weird. Yeah, it is. It's really weird. It is. It allows it allows our restaurants to only pay their waitresses and waiters like two dollars an hour. So <laughs> back home, you you would tip, but it's only if you received like exceptional service, right? So you know, if your baby throws up on the birthday cake that you brought in, and it's all a big mess, and they're like, "Oh, hang on." take the cake, clean it all up, get another cake, set it all up, and it's all done on time and nothing is otherwise gone on toward. You might give them a few pounds just to be like, well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, to expect to have to pay a percentage directly to your waiting staff, which actually nine times out of ten doesn't go directly to the waiting staff, but that's a whole other thing. Right. It's very weird. It is. Yeah. Americans but, uh, are weird. Um, yeah, so this guy walks into the house. He's you know, Sergeant Major, he's just come back from India. Yes, he's wearing a pith helmet. Wearing a pith helmet. That's not in the book, but I, it's there. It's <laughs> it's in the subtext. 
I'm just I'm just looking here. I'm like I don't remember reading that bit. Where did it say that? <laughs> he, he has a monocle too, and one of those mustaches that goes straight into his sideburns. <laughs> oh, that's a given. Yeah, 1902. Yeah, that's a given. And he does a lot of blustering. Oh, oh I, I say, oh, no, sorry. Jolly good, yes, I, yes. I did, I did like, in, in regards to the, 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 the bristling. Blustering? Um, blustering. In, in regards to the, the blustering, I do like the fact that by the time he relates the story of the monkey's paw, he's already on his fourth glass of whiskey. Right. Right. That, that I did enjoy. I, I wondered what his stories were like. Before that, like, was he, was it like sitting there in silence and the family is just looking at each other awkwardly? And then he goes, lots of people. Sergeant Major Morris, we don't want to hear about your socks again. (laughs) Have another whiskey, you'll find it a fascinating story. (laughs) There's lots of people in India. Lots of, lots of, lots of trees too. Mm -hmm. So, oh, wait. So it turns out that that he was given he he came across this thing uh, upon the death of the person who had it before him, and uh, he himself made three wishes, but he never says what they are. What do you think he wished for? I don't think you have any way of knowing. Um, the, the the only the only thing that you can really deduce from this is that whatever he wished for, he got the very worst experience that could come from wishing for those things mm-hmm. enough so that you know whilst they're talking about the, the you know the the guy trying to have a go with the the monkey's paw the guy throws it into the fire and the other then you know mr white fishes it out mm-hmm. because he's just like you know now nah, you should just let it burn that's by and far the best way to deal with this yep um so i mean whatever it is was bad yeah well the but you don't you you don't know if he lost relatives, you don't know if he lost money, colleagues, you don't know what. It's just enough to put him into sort of a... He's very morose, per- yeah. Very melancholic kind of mm-hmm. um, mood. And Mrs. White even says, like, don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? And the Sergeant Major's like, no, don't do that. Yeah. And that's how we got That's how we got the Mortal Kombat character Goro, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It used to be Mrs. White. Yes. <laughs> have you ever seen? Um, have you ever seen this? Makes me think. Have you ever seen the movie Wishmaster? No. Oh my gosh. But I kind of want to go and Photoshop Betty White's head onto Goro now. Well, yeah. I don't know if that makes Goro more or less horrifying. Probably more so. I mean. More you know, l- they're going to drop some one-liner. You're going to laugh, and then they're literally going to rip you into four chunks. Right. That's that's more horrifying than just the uh, guttural grunting that you get from Goro. I mean, is there any defense against Betty White? That's really the question. No, there's not. <laughs> um, right, so... I mean, uh, you know, to the point about this sounding like a genie in a bottle, the Mrs. White literally is like, this sounds like Arabian Nights. Right. So she's wholly dismissive of this whole thing. Yeah. Wish for something sensible. You know, yeah. the the whole the whole exercise with wishing, how do you wish for something that you want in a specific enough way that the genie or the monkey's paw can't twist it into something terrible? I think you can't. I think that's the point. 
Um, I saw a clip from a horror film recently where um, somebody had tried that. And they laid out this very specific... Um, you know, the, the mother was trying to bring back the, the dead son. Was this the and clip just, I showed you? It may have been, now I think about it. But yeah. basically, so she's trying to bring back the son. So the, the husband's like, don't do this. He so walks out the room and she's like... I wish for him to come back and he can never die and he's going to be intact. And it's going to be like this. It's going to be all this kind of stuff. And the son comes back to life. And as soon as he comes back to life, he starts writhing in pain and, and shrieking and like can't catch his breath. And the guy kind of walks back in and says, what have you done? She's like, well, I, I had him brought back. Like, in, you know, he can't die and he's intact. And he's like, he's also embalmed. Right. Yeah, that was, <laughs> the, that like, was the clip I showed you. Like, yeah. like, the, like <laughs> she, she, she wishes for her son to be, to be back exactly as he was before the car wreck. And then, like, he gets rolled in in a casket by some undertakers. Right. So that, like, shows that he was dead before the car wreck. Ooh, right. drama. And then, and then she wishes for him to be alive. And mm-hmm. so he comes alive, but he's still got embalming fluids through. Or she says, I want him alive and to never die. And so then he comes alive and he's got embalming fluids in his body. And then she proceeds to try and put him out of his misery again by chopping him up with a samurai sword. But but he, he can't, he can't, he can't die. die. Yeah. And like that's from uh like the original Tales from the Crypt from the seventies. And um that is probably my favorite adaption of the monkey spot because they they took it like just enough farther, but not so far where it loses its like its flavor. Yeah. Um and I mean, spoiler alert, this is exactly what happens at the end of this story. Right. You know. They wish, so, for, they wish for 200 pounds. Well, so, so yeah, we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, but what happens is they, they wish for 200 pounds dismissively, which at the time is, it's like a winning lottery ticket. It's mm-hmm. just an absolutely outrageous amount of money. And they, you know, son goes off to work. They're sitting around the house. Um, they spot one of the guys from the, 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 the son's place of work nervously kind of walking up the driveway, stopping, walking out, walking back in. He finally knocks on the door, comes in, and basically tells him their son's been killed. He he went through one of the machines where he worked. Um, and that, that, you know, the company is not accepting blame for this, but they will totally pay £200 in compensation. At which point the, the father, Mr. White, kind of passes out mm-hmm. so it fast forwards a little you know it, they, they they go through they have the the, the ceremony the burial whatever mm-hmm. and um i believe it's the mother makes a wish for the son to come back yeah a week after a week after the funeral well 10 days after the funeral mm-hmm so she makes she makes this wish, and they sit up waiting for him to come back, and nothing happens for hours. Mm-hmm. Candles have burnt down. They've given up. They're going to bed, and then something starts to pound on the door. And then the mother realizes, oh, oh wait, the, the cemetery is two miles away. It, it would have taken him this long to walk here. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's here. The father's like, you know, don't open the door. 
Right. The father says that he could, he, like, their son was unrecognizable except for the, his clothing. Like, he went through a piece of machinery and got mangled. Well, he went head first through a piece of machinery and got mangled. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this thing is now pounding on the door. The 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 husband is trying to stop the mother from going out to look at what he knows is just going to be the the most horrifying experience. Then he makes a wish. The pounding stops, and then he runs out into the street. Mm-hmm. And that's where the story ends. Yeah. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I don't fully understand the ending to this story. So he he wished for. He, I mean, did he wish? Did he wish the sun to go away, and then was trying to see where the sun went? I mean, what was the? See, that's that's the, the only interpretation I could come up with, but that that didn't seem to that's quite the, be right. That's the that's the mystery, isn't it? Like, because every. Every wish that they've had so far has gone horribly wrong. So, right? Did he wish for just for the sun to go away, and then he ran out to make sure that he wasn't just like you know out on the street, or mm-hmm. um, you know, is uh, is the sun now you know lurching around like a zombie, scaring people, or you know, a, a county or two over, or did he wish for um, his son to be placed back in the ground, or like the you know, it doesn't say what his wish is. So and and that well, that's that, that's the problem. And it's not that just they just don't say what it is. It's so am, ambiguous what he could have wished for at that point in time. Um, you don't necessarily even you can't even start to frame what it might have been that he he did. You couldn't infer what it is that he he wanted or yeah. wished for. Whatever he, he wished for. Done. Whatever he wished for, the the sun was gone. The sun was gone, and he ran out looking for him. When you when you asked me this question a couple of days ago, I was started thinking, well, maybe he just wished for the sun to be dead again. But but then, like the you know, the, there's, there's no body, right? There's no body, and the the mother lets out a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery. I think if she went out and saw, you know, the mangled corpse of her son dead or alive it would be a very different kind of whale <laughs> um, yeah you know and but no it, it it's just it's an odd it's it's an odd cadence to the story because it, it sort of gallops along because it you know it, it's a it's a short story it's probably the second shortest one we looked at um it's it's very short um it it gallops through these key plot points it gets to this this kind of big payoff for the story and just bleh. yeah it's kind of like hitting a brick wall <laughs> what, what what happened yeah did, did we you, you know yeah i it's, mean it's it's watching the film watching the, the the boy become the big hero watch the big hero get the magic sword get to the end of the film and watch the bad guy announce that he died somewhere off screen right <laughs> it's it's that level of like what just happened here yeah and you know the thing the thing that my brain does with this is like there's like the, the there's no implication in in the story that they were in any kind of um mortal danger 
if if the mother had managed to get the door open but but in my brain it always felt like it was a very um, dangerous situation because you know the the son has been brought back from the dead and he's you know all mangled and and like you know in other stories that kind of play on this theme like coming back from the dead is not a pleasant thing <laughs> to go through you know yeah maybe he maybe he's feeling all the pain of his that his body was experiencing and 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 that kind of anger but that's the story that my brain always tells about it but there's no there's no indication in the story when i read it this time about them being in like imminent danger from this all but but it, it's just I, I feel like you could have gone so many other ways with the ending of this and had it you know a clearer and be thematically better well i think I think he didn't write what the last wish was because then you'd have to think about what the implications of that were. There, I mean, you know, clearly, the, clearly he's wished for the, the the sun to go away, but right. But did exactly did he did he just he... happen to get like the perfect wish where the monkey's paw couldn't twist in any way and it's like oh you got me, I just have to give you what you want, <laughs> you know. The, the chances of him getting, like, the perfect wish seem to be pretty slim. So so what are the implications of that wish? Like, the sun went away, but where did he go? Maybe he did wish for him to go away, and the, the, the poor granted it because he would probably regret making that decision. Yeah. I mean, it would have... It would have... It would have um, an effect on their relationship as a couple, I'm sure. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, you've also got the fact that the the mothers could sort of raised the uh, raised the child from the ground again, and the, the father sort of banished him. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's regret on the father's part as well. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I just, I just, I didn't. I didn't find it confusing. I just found it very unsatisfying when I got to the end of this. That's fair. Yeah, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting little story. I think so too. Um, I think it's really good. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorites, and part of it, I'm sure, is nostalgia. Because when I read this in high school, it like it haunted me. Like it bothered me for a couple days after I read it. Like, oh no, and that and and this is this is my other problem. The the build up for this, you know, when when the the guy shows up from the company and he he's saying, "Well, we're not going to admit fault." They're still very much, you know, invested in the the death of the son. Mm-hmm. You know, poor, and the the poor perfect. guy. But it's this. It's it's just the part where he's just like, but we will give you two hundred dollars, uh, two hundred pounds compensation, and the father passes out. Yeah, and the the poor guy who is sent to sent to give that message, like, it's very obvious in the writing that he he knows that this is a terrible thing for the company to be telling these people that have just. Had their son well, he, he he very he very much doesn't want to be there. Right, he's, he's very like does not want to be doing that. But and this this is sort of my my problem, I guess. When you contrast that that little sequence with the the end of this, mm-hmm. yeah, no, there the should have been a better payoff to the story than there was. That that's that's the only way I can see it. Yeah, I think, but I also think that you don't you don't want to reveal the monster. I think part of what makes this this story scary is that 
your brain has to put the pieces together. And so, so it would be a very fine line to walk between, you know, adding a paragraph or maybe two paragraphs of information to help resolve it better while not shining the flashlight on the monster's face and then it not being mysterious. Yeah. Cause, cause if she opens the door and a zombie comes lurching through the door and like, I don't know, that probably would have been horrific for people in 1900, but like nowadays it would be, be like, Oh, I know this movie. <laughs> Go for the head. <laughs> so on that note, um, What's our next story going to be? Well, it'll be Christmas time, and Christmas is for Cthulhu. So we're going to be Christmas is for Cthulhu. Yes, the the bringer of holiday cheer and and uh, wonderful presents, we're and all gonna... things flavored with peppermint. Yes, because that's and fish. You can take your pumpkin spice, and you can just walk off a short pier with that. No, yeah. it's peppermint. Peppermint season is the correct one. Yeah, so we're going to do The Call of Cthulhu. Call of Cthulhu. By H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> One of my favorites. And on that note, we'll see you then. I'm, like, seriously on my like third painkiller today. I don't know what is wrong with me. Mm. I'm ready for coffee. Of, I hope any of that is coherent. If you enjoyed our podcast, consider liking, subscribing, and maybe even recommending to a friend. We'll see you soon.